Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Mile Higher Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As you can tell, if you're watching this on YouTube or even if you're listening, that there is no other voice here but me. Today, I'm going to be doing a solo episode from my basement. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can just tell this is a very, very jank rig setup I have here. You know, the last couple of weeks I've been on paternity leave. Kendall's still on maternity leave. We had, um, we got to experience the birth of our daughter on August 2nd. Holly was born. And the past couple of weeks have just been such a dream, honestly. It's been better than anything I could have ever imagined. And I'm excited to get back into things, but obviously Kendall wanted to take some more time to enjoy, you know, those first months or weeks of parenthood and motherhood. And so, yeah, I'm going to be doing today's episode by myself, but then next week I will be back in the normal studio. Janelle will be joining me. And then from there, not exactly sure how many weeks it'll be just Janelle and I, But Kendall will probably be back sometime in September, I'm thinking. But for now, it's just going to be me. Hopefully, you're down with that. But yeah, I just want to start out by saying that thank you all for the kind words, the love, the support. Uh, Many of you follow us on social media. You saw our daughter. And we just had the absolute best experience. I mean, it just was beautiful from start to finish. And nothing can prepare you for the birth of your child. And it's one of those things that I had dreamed about and thought about and, and all of that, but it really didn't like set in and hit me until she came out and I saw her face and it was just the most amazing experience of my life. I've done a lot of cool things. A lot of things I thought were profound experiences and this just topped it by like a million times. Uh, it just was something that couldn't I can't even describe to you. Um, if you're a parent out there, you know what I'm talking about though, that feeling and just the love that you feel for your child when you see them. And it was just the most magical experience. And Kendall was absolutely stellar throughout the whole thing. I mean, I'm just so proud of her. She handled it like a boss and honestly, she made it so much easier for me because I just knew that she was going to be able to do this and she did. And everything is good with her and the baby. They're completely healthy and safe and they're pretty much fully recovered now. Um, They're just enjoying each other's company. They're actually upstairs right now napping and I'm downstairs here podcasting, but it was just the most amazing experience. So thank you all to those that sent kind words and prayers and everything. We really do appreciate that. And yeah, so we're parents now and I feel like it's changed our perspectives on a lot of things in life and it's definitely changed my perspective when it comes to true crime and you know sort of how we look at cases going forward. You definitely being a parent, you just I don't know, it just gives you a whole different lens to look through. And so I'm interested to see how that sort of affects our perspectives on cases moving forward, but today we're going to be diving into the case of celebrity dog trainer Mark Stover. This is a very sort of a wild case, to be honest with you. Um, But yeah, we're going to be diving into that today. But before we do, just a couple other reminders. We just restocked all of our merch at milehiremerch.com. So all of the milehire designs have been restocked in all sizes, and we do ship worldwide. So if you haven't gotten a hold of anything from the new merch collection, it is back in stock, and it won't be for very long. 
So check it out at milehiremerch.com. But this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Native, Casetify, Favor, and HelloFresh. But I'm just going to go ahead and just jump right into this case. And let's talk about Mark Stover and a little bit about his background. So Mark Stover was born Theodore Mark Stover on March 18th, 1952. And he grew up in Mercer Island in Washington State. His mother raised him and his sister Vicky because their father sadly passed away when Mark was only a year and a half old. He also had another sister who tragically passed away when he was young. Vicky remembers that survival was a big part of their lives growing up. As a single mother, it's very difficult out there. And so she did whatever she could to make ends meet. And she actually worked at a furniture shop in Seattle. As far as Mark's youth goes, there's not a whole lot that we know besides the fact that he was an extremely troubled kid. His birth name, like I mentioned, it was actually Theodore, but after high school, he dropped his first name and began going by his middle name, Mark. High school was unfortunately not a good time for Mark. He got into a lot of trouble and he ended up only making it to the 10th grade before he was kicked out for quote unquote smoking dope. People who knew Mark said that throughout his life, he always presented a very hard exterior. He was tough and troubled. One friend said that Mark was also a very paranoid person, even from a young age, but he was also incredibly intelligent. Mark loved to read and cook, and he became a skilled outdoorsman. He also had a love for history, politics, and guns. He actually owned more than 30 guns for personal use. Mark's life course really changed when he was a teenager, though, after he got his first dog, a German shepherd named Gunter. His mother said that this dog saved his life. It set him on a better path and gave him a purpose he so desperately needed. He had an instant connection with his dog, and he took Gunter's training really seriously. His knack for connecting with animals was unlike anything people had ever seen before. By 18 years old, Mark was breeding and training German shepherds and building a loyal clientele. And although he didn't finish high school, it's been reported that he went on to get a degree in psychology and a minor in history from the University of Washington in 1975. And over the years, Mark earned himself the title Dog Trainer for the Stars. He had a celebrity base of clients, including members of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Major League Baseball players, and even the CEO of Starbucks. But he worked with more than just the stars. He loved animals, and they loved him. He worked with anyone that was looking for professional dog training. Mark was the kind of person who not only got to know the dog, but also the owner. He'd find a way to connect with them and use that connection in his training techniques. He wasn't afraid to get down on all fours and be at eye level with any dog he was training. He was so talented, in fact, that he even trained dogs for the police force and would act as an expert witness testifying in dog bite cases. Mark, as you remember, didn't come from money, but he was building an empire all by himself. He once told the Seattle Times that he had a dream and he wasn't going to let anyone tell him what to do. That is until he met Linda Updike in 1991. Linda Updike was quite the opposite of Mark Stover. Her father, Wally Updike, was the multimillionaire owner of Chateau Saint Michel Winery, as well as the K2 Ski Corporation. She came from wealth, whereas Mark was someone who had to create it all on his own. The two were first introduced after Linda found Mark's number in the phone book while she was looking for a dog trainer. Her first impression of him wasn't that great. She actually thought he was pretty arrogant, but the two became closer as he trained her dog, and eventually her idea of Mark changed. Eventually, the two actually started dating. 
Linda was a tall blonde and very wealthy, and many thought Mark struck gold with her. It only took three months of dating for the two of them to start their own dog training business. They opened Stover and Updike LLC on Kicket Island, which is an island in Washington owned by Linda's parents. They opened up a sort of all-inclusive resort for dogs on Kicket Island. For $45 a day, dogs could stay there and be taken out three times daily. They had access to trail runs, beach time, dog pedicures, grooming, and more. Linda was actually in charge of the dog massage therapy and running the business side of things while Mark maintained his role as trainer. And by 2002, the couple grew this business into a multi-million dollar enterprise. And on May 17, 2002, Linda and Mark got married at the Four Seasons Hotel in Las Vegas. Linda's father was the officiant at their wedding, but her mother wasn't such a big fan of Mark. She felt like there was something cold and calculating about him. She even told Linda about her concerns, but Linda was, you know, in love. And later, Linda wished that she had listened to her mother. As their business began to grow, so did Mark's aggressiveness. She said that the more money they started making, the cheaper he became. He would yell at her for buying something that he thought was too expensive, even if she was just buying food. Linda said she suffered through his abusive tendencies for a few more years until she had had enough. And in September of 2005, Linda moved into a guest house on Kicket Island. She hoped that the two could repair their marriage if they weren't living under the same roof. But that didn't end up happening. In April of 2006, she filed for divorce. It'd be another two years before their divorce actually went through. And Linda stayed on Kicket Island until December of 2006, when she purchased a house of her own in Winthrop, Washington. As many divorces do, they take a very long time. And their divorce took about two years to go through because Mark was trying to keep them together. But Linda was absolutely certain that they were done. In the spring of 2007, she even contacted Mark and asked if he wanted to keep any of their wedding things, such as photo albums and a candle. She specifically remembers Mark telling her that he didn't want any of these items, and she didn't want them either. So she threw them away. Linda claims that when Mark found out that she threw the items away, he actually became enraged. She says that he harassed her for months. He would frequently drive hours through the mountains and show up at her house unannounced. According to Linda, the harassment never ended. Even after he finally granted her a divorce in January 2008, this obsessive behavior continued. He did buy her out of their business for $100,000, but he wasn't done with her. Linda says that he would sometimes call her 100 times a day looking for her. His stalking only got worse after the divorce. She remembers that one time she was inside of her home and she caught a glimpse of something terrifying outside her window. It was Mark, sitting at the bottom of a hill, pointing a rifle up and aiming it at her. In another instance, Mark called her and gave her a descriptive account of what she had been doing the night before, and that happened to be having sex with one of Mark's close friends. She fully believed her ex-husband was capable of murder, especially considering he always showed up at her house with a gun. Linda felt like she could never predict when her ex-husband was going to show up and threaten her. And his anger seemed to be directly related to the fact that she had their wedding photos, even though she claimed to have thrown them away. When their divorce was finalized in January of 2008, Mark left a threatening voicemail on Linda's phone. And the message read, If I ever, for whatever means, find out that you are still in possession of those wedding things, I don't care if it is 5, 10, or 20 years from now, I'm coming to see you big time. You got your goddamn divorce, but I better not ever find out that you are in possession of those wedding pictures, or I will never forget this. And you know I am a guy that can hold a grudge until I am dead. Although it's unclear why he needed 
or wanted the photos. He seemed pretty determined to get them. Another time, Mark called Linda on his birthday and heavily implied that he was going to commit suicide. He told her that he was giving up and that this birthday was probably going to be his last. Obviously, this was very manipulative and emotionally abusive behavior. Coercive suicide threats are often a method of emotional blackmail that abusers use to keep their victims from leaving them. Mark did receive a stalking conviction in 2008 for this behavior. Authorities finally had proof of his stalking after one of Linda's neighbors caught him going through her garbage cans in March of 2008. And when the neighbor asked who he was and what he was doing, Mark told her that his name was John and that he had permission to be there. But this neighbor knew he was Mark and that he wasn't actually allowed to be there. This conviction led to a few penalties for Mark. He was sentenced to two years of probation, 12 months of anger management course, and he had to surrender all of his firearms. One month after the stalking charge, Linda entered a domestic violence protection order, which banned Mark from contacting her. Mark obeyed this order and made no contact with Linda from this point forward. Mark actually bought a home on Thompson Road in Anacortes, Washington. The property was large enough to accommodate the dogs he was training, so that's where he relocated his training business. It was outfitted with indoor and outdoor kennels and had a fenced area for the dogs to run. Even though Mark appeared to be moving on, Linda says that she still feared for her life. Even with the restraining order, Linda is still not feeling safe knowing that Mark is out there. So she actually goes and starts taking self-defense classes and even hires a bodyguard, which we'll get into right after this first ad break. All right, so jumping back into the case of Mark Stover and Linda Updike. So during the height of her panic that her ex-husband was going to do something to her, Linda started taking self-defense classes. She also took shooting lessons and hired a man named Michael Oakes. Michael was working in sales for an internet service provider when they met, but he previously worked as a security expert. She hired Michael to assess her property for potential weaknesses. That way she could better protect herself against her ex-husband. During this assessment, Linda obviously went through great detail on what Mark was doing when he was stalking her and harassing her. She told him that she was worried his mental state would get worse and she feared for her own life. Some people said that Michael became Linda's personal bodyguard, although she denies that. Michael was also a divorcee and a single father to four children. He grew up overseas and even though he only stood five foot six inches tall, he learned how to stand up for himself. His mother once described him as a warrior and this warrior attitude carried through his adult life. Many people said that Michael was the kind of person who was looking for ways to be a hero. Michael used to own a business that developed force-on-force training. He also consulted law enforcement in tactical training as well as close-quarters combat survival training. He also spent some time in his career training SWAT teams. And although their relationship started out as purely professional, Michael and Linda fell in love. They quickly started dating and not long after, Michael says that Mark began coming after him. After all, there was nothing in the protective order that said Mark wasn't allowed to contact people who knew Linda. Michael says that Mark first approached him in May of 2009 at a Costco in Kennewick, Washington. Mark told Michael that he had to get the wedding photos for him and meet him at the Northgate Mall on July 14th. Mark said that if Michael did as he was told, he wouldn't hurt his kids. Mark went as far as describing what Michael's children were wearing that day to prove to him he was capable of finding them. Michael didn't tell Linda anything about Mark's threats because he didn't want to scare her, but he still took this threat very seriously. 
was a very protective father and he loved his kids more than anything. Michael said he truly believed that Mark would act on his threats and come after his children if he didn't deliver the wedding photos. So Michael even began training his kids in self-defense. By then, he and his kids had moved in with Linda and the house was armed with guns at every turn. There were guns behind curtains, under beds and drawers, pretty much in every nook and cranny of the house. Michael said he did end up meeting with Mark on July 14th, but told him that he couldn't find the photos. Mark seemed to be calm that day, and he only told him that he'd be, quote-unquote, in touch. Michael said the next time he was approached by Mark was in August 2009 in Whitefish, Montana. He and Linda were there looking to buy some property and visit her dad, and that's when he saw Mark in line at the grocery store they were at. He said Mark came up to him and told him that Montana was his state and that they were not allowed to move there. At that point, they agreed to meet again in late September back in Anacortes. Michael says that Mark never showed up for this meeting, though, but he called him a few weeks later to say that he had to meet him on October 24th with the photos or else. But Mark also seemed to be facing some troubles of his own at the time, and that's when an anonymous call to Skagit County 911 was made on August 3rd, 2009. The caller told the dispatcher that a crime was going to take place the next morning, They identified Mark Stover as the person who would be committing the crime. The transcript for the 911 call says, Skagit 911, what's your emergency? The caller says there's a crime that's going to take place in the morning. The caller then says, the last name is Stover. The operator says, is someone there with you? Why are you whispering? The caller says, this is very dangerous. Carries a gun. I wish you guys would do something before he kills somebody. The next day, Mark Stover was pulled over by Skagit County authorities and his vehicle was searched. And that's when they found a small box filled with low-grade cocaine and marijuana hidden under his car. Mark told the officer that the drugs had been placed there by someone else. And the officer just let him off with a warning. During the time, Linda and Michael said Mark was stalking and threatening them. And Mark felt like the same thing was happening to him. He told his sister and a bunch of other people that Linda was out to kill him. He even suggested that her father may be in on it too. He was definitely pretty paranoid. Mark couldn't legally own guns after the stalking conviction, but he did have a guard dog, a German shepherd named Dingo, or Ding for short. His family actually says that after his divorce from Linda, Mark was actually doing really well in life. They seem to believe that he disengaged from his ex-wife after the stalking conviction, and it was her who continued to cause problems. And when he moved to Anacortes, he met a new woman named Teresa, who he fell in love with and the two quickly got engaged. People who were close to Mark said he seemed to be doing better all around. Teresa even backed up Mark's story and told the police that it was Linda who was the real problem. She said that Linda would call Mark's clients and talk badly about him so that he would lose business. He once told a client that he believed his days were numbered. Mark was paranoid that someone would do something to him. And after the incident where he was pulled over and drugs were found under his car, he always looked under there before driving as he was actually fearful that someone might put a bomb under there. But unlike Linda, who had voicemails proving that Mark was threatening her, he had no evidence to show police to prove his theory that she was after him. It seemed he really only had his paranoia, but his family and close acquaintances strongly believed that he was onto something. They believed that his fears were valid, and that he had good reason to believe that Linda would do something to him. So the next events I'm going to be talking about here, the details of them are based on surveillance footage, eyewitness accounts, and direct testimony. So on October 24, 2009, Michael was scheduled to meet up with Mark regarding the wedding photos he had asked for. 
Before this meeting, Michael arranged to meet up with his ex-wife, Jennifer. Jennifer remembered that Michael came to her house sometime around 7 p.m., and he told her that he was in Anacortes for a job, and he explicitly told her that it was going to be dangerous. Around 10 p.m., he left her home for this job, and she didn't hear from him again until the next day. The next day came, and he sent her an email saying that the job had failed and that he might come back to the area again in a few days. Michael denied that he was there for a job. Instead, he said that he was in Anacortes for a meeting with Mark. Michael says that he went to Mark's house that night after leaving Jennifer's and told him he didn't have the photos. Mark supposedly told him to come back with the photos at 7 a.m. on the 28th. But before we talk about that day, we're going to backtrack for a minute and explain why, according to Jennifer, she and Michael split up. Michael and Jennifer were still together when he first met Linda. Early on into helping her, he told Jennifer that he was being commissioned for a job. He wasn't super descriptive, but he said that he was being contacted by a woman's father who said that she was going through a bad divorce. The father told him that the ex-husband was stalking, threatening, and harassing this woman. Michael told Jennifer that the woman's name was Linda. He also said that he planned to bait this man and take care of him, and she believed that he meant murder. Jennifer said that she filed for divorce because she didn't want to be married to someone who was willing to do something like this. And because of his hero complex, she believed that he was really capable of killing someone. So when he came to her house on October 24th, she was worried that his job had something to do with what he had told her during their marriage. So like I mentioned before, Michael said that he and Mark planned to meet at 7 a.m. on October 28th. But the story of what went down that day is slightly different depending on who tells the story. First, I'm going to be giving a description based solely on the surveillance footage, eyewitness accounts, and direct testimony, and then we'll walk through a second version of events. So at 2.30 a.m. on October 28, 2009, Michael was seen leaving Linda's house in Winthrop via surveillance cameras. His next whereabouts were captured at 5.16 a.m. at a Walmart in Mount Vernon. A receipt from 5.36 a.m. showed that Michael purchased a backpack, a camouflage sweatshirt and pants, ankle weights, shin guards, and an anchor rope. Meanwhile, over at Mark's house in Anacortes, which is just 25 minutes away from Mount Vernon, one of Mark's employees arrived around 7.50 a.m. Ten minutes later, another employee arrived for work. The employee was responsible for driving the company van, and based on a conversation she had with Mark the night before, she didn't expect him to be home that morning when she arrived. He told her that he was leaving sometime around 7.30 a.m. for an appointment he had in Seattle at 9 a.m., So when she got to his house to pick up some of the dogs, she was surprised to see Mark's white station wagon still parked by the house. When she walked up to the house, the dogs in the outdoor kennels were going crazy. She assumed Mark had been running late or the appointment was canceled, so she went to the back door to check inside of his home. But when she tried to get in, the door was locked, which was super weird. Mark usually left it open so his employees could use the bathroom. When she walked back to her van, she also noticed what looked like blood stains on the driveway but she assumed that Mark's dog Dingo had opened up her stitches from a recent procedure, so she decided it was okay to leave. About 30 minutes later, around 8.30 a.m., another employee who was responsible for walking the dogs arrived at Mark's house for work, and when she got there, she saw someone she thought was Mark loading something large and heavy in the back of his white station wagon. She then saw this man, who she assumed was Mark, get into the car and speed away from the house. She thought it was weird that Mark would drive away so quickly, especially on his own property, where there were several dogs. After witnessing this, she went up to the property to use a bathroom, 
She used a different door than the other employees, so she was able to get inside the house. But as soon as she entered the house, she was hit with the overwhelming smell of bleach. It was definitely super strange. Mark never used bleach or harsh cleaning chemicals. Then she noticed what looked like cleaned up blood on the carpet. But when she walked through the rest of his house, nothing appeared out of order, stolen, or even damaged. She probably assumed Mark accidentally hurt himself and was leaving quickly to get it taken care of. The next set of surveillance cameras captured Michael at 9.43 a.m. He was driving Mark's white station wagon into the parking lot of a Lowe's back in Mount Vernon. He was then seen going into the store, and a receipt from 9.50 a.m. showed that he bought a pair of bolt cutters. Two hours later, around 11.45 a.m., there was another sighting of someone fitting Michael's description. Two women were at Summit Park Grange in Skagit County when they noticed two vehicles parked back-to-back in a chained-off private area. They witnessed a shorter man with dark hair moving large items from a white station wagon into a black SUV. One of the women says her first instinct was that the man was moving a body, but she told herself that her true crime brain was just overthinking it. They still called 911 to report the trespasser and wrote down his license plate as he drove away. And when a Skagit County deputy arrived, he ran the plates of the white station wagon and found out that the vehicle belonged to Mark Stover. He also ran the plates of the black SUV the women had written down, and he discovered that the vehicle belonged to Michael Oakes. The deputy also noticed that someone had cut the chain link used to block off the area. Meanwhile, as the deputy checked out the scene, surveillance video from Swinomish Northern Lights Casino captured Michael's car entering the parking lot. It then showed the car driving out of range, headed towards a dock leading to a channel of water. To the deputy's luck, he came across Michael and his black SUV around 12.30 p.m. and pulled him over to question him about trespassing. Michael denied having been the trespasser. Instead, he says that he was just there to make a phone call and went on his way. The deputy noted that Michael seemed very nervous during this interaction. Also, it looked like his back seat was filled with camping gear. He didn't suspect anything was wrong, so he let Michael off with a warning. Shortly after he was pulled over, Michael called Jennifer and asked her to meet him at a nearby Starbucks around 1.15 p.m. She agreed to meet him again, but when she got there, she noticed that her ex-husband looked weirdly disheveled. Michael was usually well-kept, so it was pretty odd to see him so messy like this. Plus, she noticed that he had a reddish, rust-colored stain on his jeans. Michael asked her if there was bleach or an ocean somewhere nearby. Jennifer said yes, and he told her that he wanted to go there. But he said that his car was dirty and full, so they had to drive separately. Michael was acting very strange when they got to the beach. At one point, he even disappeared for 20 minutes to use the bathroom. And when he came back, he told Jennifer that he was in serious trouble. For a few hours, he explained he made a mistake during his job, and he was terrified he'd be caught for what happened. Michael then told Jennifer about how he had just been pulled over. He said that if the officer had looked at what was in his back seat, he would have been arrested on the spot. He went as far as telling her that if there was a trial for what happened, he would go away for a long time. Obviously, this this made Jennifer terrified. She feared the worst, so she didn't ask him specific details about what happened. Michael Oakes eventually left the beach, and at 4.51 p.m., he was seen on surveillance footage back at the Lowe's in Mount Vernon. A receipt from 4.54 p.m. showed that Michael returned the bolt cutter he purchased earlier that morning. Lastly, Michael was seen at 6.21 p.m. driving Mark's white station wagon into the parking lot of the Northern Lights Casino. He then returned home to Linda and Winthrop just after 11.30 p.m. Mark's fiance Teresa had been trying to reach him the whole day. She said that she usually spoke to him about three to five times per day, so not hearing from him was really strange. It wasn't until the next day after speaking with one of Mark's employees 
that she decided to call the Skagit County Police. For somebody that had all this training and consulted for law enforcement, I'm very surprised at all the stops that Michael made during this job. It seems really stupid to me that he kept going to Lowe's, kept showing himself on surveillance cameras where they could easily figure out where he was and get receipts. The fact that he returns a bolt cutters is just so bizarre. I'm like, you would think that for somebody who had the knowledge that he had, he would have been way more planned out with this and would have had all of his ducks in a row before going and committing this murder clearly. But before we get into how this case ends, we're going to take our last break and we'll be right back. So before we went to break, Teresa is obviously very worried about where Mark is. And she actually learned from one of his employees that his dog Dingo had been found with three gunshot wounds to the head that morning of the 29th. She was rushed to an emergency vet and survived her injuries actually, but Mark was nowhere to be seen. When Teresa called the police, the deputy who responded to the trespassing call remembered that one of the vehicles was registered to Mark Stover, and he actually drove back to Summit Park Garage to find the car and hopefully Mark, but it was already gone. It wasn't until 3.30 p.m. on October 29th that police found Mark's car abandoned in the casino parking lot. There were a few bloodstains on the carpet. Officers began interviewing Mark's employees to learn more about him and who might do something to him. And that's how they learned about Linda Updike and her boyfriend, Michael Oakes, the same Michael who was pulled over by their department the day before. By 7.40 p.m., two officers arrived at Linda's house to look for Michael in his black SUV. Linda welcomed them into her home, and they broke the news that her ex-husband had disappeared. Linda looked like she was really shocked, even though she got an email earlier that morning from one of his employees saying Mark was missing. Michael was home as well, but denied being at or near Mark's house. He said he was in the area to visit his ex-wife and two of his sons who were staying with her. During their conversation, Michael announced that he needed to find his medication. It was raining outside, and he also said he needed to roll up his car's windows. What he didn't realize was that one of the officers was watching him while he went to his car. The officer watched as Michael reached into the back seat and pulled out a white bag. Then Michael tossed the bag over an embankment, and that gave the officer cause to arrest Michael on suspicion of murder. And when police recovered this white bag, they opened it and found a 22 caliber pistol. Mark Stover's house was then searched the next day and investigators found bloodstains on the porch, hallway walls, carpets, and in the bedroom. They also found shell casings which matched the gun Michael tossed over the embankment. And at that point, Michael was officially arrested on October 30th and charged with second degree intentional murder. His bail was set at $5 million. Two weeks later, on November 13, 2009, Michael was charged with premeditated murder in the first degree, and he pleaded not guilty. He was arraigned on these charges on November 25th, and his bail was lowered to $2.5 million. He was able to post bail, and he was released while he waited for his trial. On May 27, 2010, Michael filed a notice of intent to rely on defense of self, others, or property. Essentially, this meant he was now claiming he did kill Mark, but it was in self-defense. Michael's trial began on September 27, 2010, and his defense lawyer was a man named John Henry Brown, who was famous for defending notorious serial killer Ted Bundy. In an interesting turn of events, he actually waived his right to an opening statement in court, saying that he wanted to present their defense after the prosecution laid out their own story. 
In total, there were more than 50 witnesses who testified and more than 700 pieces of evidence that were submitted into trial. And one of the most crucial pieces of evidence was a bulletproof vest found in Michael's car. Michael's ex-wife, Jennifer, was one of the witnesses called to testify on behalf of the prosecution. She told the jury about her two encounters with Michael on the 24th and the 28th. However, she was unable to tell them about the conversation the two had had while he was married because it was protected by law. A gun expert testified that the shell casings found outside Mark's home matched Michael's gun. This expert also brought up the bulletproof vest Michael was wearing that day. He said it was strange that the bullet hole found in it was directly in the center of the chest. It was almost as if it had been shot intentionally at perfect range. A DNA expert also testified that the DNA profile from the blood on the inside of Michael's SUV matched the DNA profile of Mark's blood. And when it finally came time for the defense to present their argument, Michael was called to the stand. First, he described the nature of his relationship with Linda and how and why they met. He explained that Linda told him all about her ex-husband. She talked about how she feared for her life based on his past stalking. He also described how Mark began to stalk and threaten him and his children, which he took very seriously. Michael confirmed that he had gone to Mark's house on October 24th without the photos and that he was asked to return four days later with them. He said he only went back to Mark's house on the 28th because he was hoping to convince him to move on. According to Michael, he wanted to help him understand that the photos were truly gone. But when it came to the surveillance footage of Michael buying ankle weights, anchor rope, camouflage clothing, shin guards, and a backpack, he said there was a very reasonable explanation. According to Michael, he went on Google Earth to look at Mark's house before they met. He saw that the home was surrounded by woods and he worried that if Mark got upset with him, he would need a way to escape. He said that he bought those items in case he was attacked by Mark or his dog and needed to escape. Michael specifically said he was going to attach the weights to the anchor rope and use it as a method to climb a water tower in case of an emergency. He said the weights would weigh down the rope and allow him to safely climb up, but he never needed to use these items because he had to react quickly when Mark attacked him. Michael said that when he arrived, Mark invited him into his home And at that point, he broke the news to Mark that he didn't have the photos he wanted. He said that Mark told him to wait by the bathroom in the hallway and he walked outside. When Mark came back inside, he was carrying a gun. According to Michael, a fight broke out and Mark shot him in the chest. Luckily, his bulletproof vest saved him. Michael managed to wrestle the gun away from Mark. And then he pulled the trigger and shot Mark in self-defense. He even reenacted the fateful fight in court. Literally acted it out. When he realized that Mark was dead, Michael paced around the house a few times. He decided that no police officer would believe the truth that he killed Mark in self-defense, so he decided the only thing he could do was get rid of the body. Michael claimed that he didn't make any sort of efforts to clean the house. He said he moved the body so that he could have an extra day to figure out what to do. And to this day, Mark's body has never been found. Michael said he threw it in the Swinomish Channel behind the casino along with the weights rope gun and other supplies but several searches of the area uncovered nothing lastly michael stated that he only tossed the white bag over the embankment to buy himself one more day he claimed he didn't know that the gun was in there he just thought it was just a blood soaked rack the defense did their best to paint michael as a victim in the story they called him a devoted father and caring partner they also painted mark as a dangerous stalker and even described him as a domestic violence terrorist And after a four-week-long trial, it took the jury only four days to come back with a verdict. 
On October 22, 2010, Michael Oakes was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Mark Stover. A guilty conviction in a no-body case was a huge victory for the prosecution. Although many people suspect that Linda was behind the murder, she's never been charged with a crime in relation to Mark Stover's death. And as of today, there is no concrete evidence that links Linda to the murder of her ex-husband. Michael is now serving 26 and a half years in prison at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. It was believed that he would be released early due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but as of today, he is still incarcerated. His children stand by his innocence, and they have a website dedicated to freeing their father. Wow. What a crazy case. And, I mean, definitely a tough one because I think Mark for sure was acting irrationally. I mean, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that He's very upset about the wedding photos. I mean, he was not willing to let let that go. But at the same time, it's very difficult to believe that Michael Oakes is innocent in this case. I mean, to me, I understand that you freak out and you want to buy yourself time. I get that to a certain extent. But to me, all of it seems way too planned out. I mean, for somebody that is meeting with an individual who, as far as we know, had never physically attacked you. And, you know, if you knew that they were going to be armed, you could have came armed. And then, I don't know. It, it's it's very interesting to me that he, he tried to play the self-defense act. I think it was the only sort of defense that he could do. And he realized that. And maybe he was going to be able to make that work for him. But the fact that the jury came back four days later seems to me that they didn't believe his story. And I think there's plenty of circumstantial evidence to suggest that Linda likely influenced Michael to just deal with Mark. I mean, it seemed like Linda was really afraid of Mark and Mark was stalking her. But at the same time, it's like you can't just murder your stalker, right? You got to go through the proper channels to, to actually you know, stop that behavior. And Mark, they never did that. And it seems like Michael likely came into the picture and escalated things. He really loved Linda and cared for her and wanted to take care of this issue for her. I mean, the hero complex was real. And so he was like, you know what? I'll take care of, you know, I'm this, you know, tactical hero, man. And so I'm going to take care of this for you. And it seemed like he attempted to think it out fairly well and kind of concoct this whole story, but just his actions and the way it all went down just doesn't make sense. And then, you know, if in, I I never understand in these self-defense cases where people claim that they killed somebody in self-defense that they then go and get rid of the body. I'm just like, that is super, super suspicious. Don't you think that it would make more sense when it came time for trial to actually, you know, have the body be examined and so that through forensic evidence they could actually prove that this was self-defense and that you could actually prove that they fired the first shot at you and then you shot them so the fact that he you know and he got shot right in the middle of the vest where it's clearly protecting him i mean he likely just shot the vest on the ground put it on i mean it's just it was a very very poor attempt at trying to cover this up and ultimately it didn't work 
And I mean, sad, sadly for Teresa and Mark's family, they lost a loved one that day. And it just seems like this could have been resolved in, in such a different way that didn't resort to violence. In the end, I'm glad that Mark's family got the justice they deserved. And Michael is now incarcerated. Honestly, I'm surprised he's not incarcerated for life that he only got 25 years for this. I mean, he should be, he should be incarcerated for far longer because this was clearly premeditated murder. But yeah, it's just, it's such a weird, weird case. But yeah, I want to know what you think about this one. Do you think that Michael got the punishment that he deserved? Do you think that Michael really did kill Mark in self-defense? Do you think Mark was the actual perpetrator in this and Michael was the victim? Seems very, very unlikely to me. The evidence all points to Mark being the victim here. But I want to know your thoughts on this case. Let me know in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. Again, thank you for joining me for this episode from my basement. I'll be back in the normal Mile Hire Studio next week. But yeah, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Thanks again for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to Mile Hire Podcast on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, following us on Spotify. I really do appreciate it. And I will see you next time. Keep taking your mind a mile higher.